Well, um, how many of you guys here are directionally challenged? Anybody? I can see some nudges from spouses, like, <laughs> that's you. I am directionally challenged for sure. My husband will attest to that. Directions is, is not good for me. Google Maps has changed my life. It is awesome. It's saved my life many times, and um, they are great. They really help you stay on track, and, you know, it's so easy. They just tell you where to go, turn right, turn left, whatever. Um, but anyway, a couple of weeks ago, about two months ago, Sam was off to Tuvalu, and me and Emma dropped him out to the airport, and um, it was just after the tunnel had opened, and so it was our first time going through the tunnel, and it was pretty cool, actually. That tunnel is so much better getting to the airport, and Emma was really excited, and she was looking for forward to going through it again on the way back. And anyway, Sam said to me, oh, do you know the way home? And I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. It's pretty straightforward. And he said, yeah, all you need to do is go straight ahead and uh, make sure you just keep going straight and stay in the same lane and, and you'll be fine. And I said, oh, well, great, you know, no problem. I'll do that, easy. And so anyway, um, he dropped him off and I came out of the airport and I went straight, as he told me, straight ahead. Turns out it's not straight ahead. It's like left and then straight ahead. Could have told me. So anyway, um, five minutes in, I'm thinking, where are the flags? You know, where's that building that's on the angle? Nothing's looking very familiar. And then I started reading the signs, and they're all saying Manukau, South Auckland. I'm like, oh. (laughs) And Emma um, pipes up from the back, just turn on your phone map, Mum. I said, well, it's not that easy. I'm on the motorway right now. Anyway, luckily up ahead, like, I saw an exit that said Waitakere, something to do with Waitakere. So I zoomed across, like, four lanes, got it just in time, (laughs) didn't crash, made it home. We didn't go through the tunnel. We missed that boat. But anyway, never mind. We made it home, and that was the main thing. But um, here's the thing. I am very directionally challenged, but not just in driving, even in walking, would you believe? I have got lost on walks before, but not really that kind of walking. I mean just walking the walk of life. Um, You know, it's actually quite hard to walk the way I'm supposed to walk and take the right direction. You know, like the times when I am driving and someone else is driving and clearly they've done something wrong, um, they've cut me off or whatever it might be, And so I feel like I should just let them know politely that they've done something wrong because otherwise they might offend someone else or crash, right? So I'm just like, you know, really politely letting them know, hey, guys, (laughs) you got it wrong. I'm pretty sure that's the right thing to do. Um, Or what about the time when I'm running late, which is very occasionally running late for a meeting or maybe quite regularly, and someone comes up to me and they've got a question and I have to interrupt them and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. I'm running late for the meeting, right? Or um, when I've had a long, hard day at home and all I want to do is sit down and just watch TV for a few moments and chill out. I know in the back of my mind there's this person God placed on my heart that I should phone, but I can do it tomorrow, right? Because I need to just relax and unwind, right? Right? Mm, Maybe not so much. I'm constantly battling to walk in an uphill direction and continually getting pulled down by my my nature and my natural bent. You know, walking uphill is actually really hard. And so often my actions feel right and seem right, but actually they're completely wrong. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about kingdom living. I'm talking about upward living. That's what I've called this message this morning. It's a lifestyle that's so radical, so upside down, inside out, um, completely off kilter with what the world sees as normal. 
Up is down, broken is whole, sad is happy, first is last, weak is strong. There's a passage in the Bible that talks about this upward living lifestyle. It's one of the most famous um, passages in the Bible. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to look this morning at the first part of that sermon, which is the Beatitudes. Um, These statements are really radical. Some say shocking. One person says that um, the statements in this sermon are so unnatural, they're either completely illogical and useless or they're an inspiration for a different kind of life. So we're going to have a look at it and see what we can find. But before we do, let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your words um, from, your, from the Bible and your words in this passage. They are amazing. And God, I pray as we look at them that you would just um, shift us, God. You'd shift us from where we are today to where you want us to be. You'd show us a, a different way to walk. You'd challenge us. You'd inspire us and you'd speak to us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and be with us as we continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can turn with me to Matthew 5, and um, I'm not going to read them all out to you because we're going to go through them. But the first verse says, After seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are... And on and on it goes. You know the words. And um, so this passage of Scripture is called the Beatitudes. And I've always found them kind of... um, puzzling and not 100% sure what they mean, but intriguing as well. So that's why I want to have a look at it this morning. They're all about how to be blessed and how to be a blessing. You know, when I was with Emma the other day, uh, I said to her something like, oh, we're so blessed that we've got such a wonderful family and a beautiful home. And straight away, she's like, I'm not blessed, mum. I said, why not? She said, because I'm not married. (laughs) I said, (laughs) what? Since when did you have to be blessed to, to be married to be blessed? No, you don't. Some people think the opposite. Not me. Okay. Um, so anyways, let's look at some of the... I want to have a think about some of the famous speeches that were ever recorded in history, speeches that changed the course of history. Two come to mind for me. One of them, I'm sure you'll all know, Martin Luther King. I have a dream. I have a dream that all men are created equal, where my children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today, a speech that changed history, and we continue to look at and refer to even to this day. There's another speech by Winston Churchill Churchill, that's also really famous, and in it he says, we shall not flag or fail. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds, in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Great men and great speeches that inspired nations. And they often fly in the face of current thinking to inspire people to something greater and better. But in Matthew 5, we have an even more famous speech or sermon by Jesus himself, the greatest of men. And in it, he presents the pattern of living for his followers. It's the presentation of what Christian culture should be like, but in fact, it was more like Christian counterculture back then because it was really completely opposite of what his contemporary society thought and did. And do you know that is still as true today as it was back then, 2,000 years ago? These statements are still um, so contrary to how the world lives. This great speech or sermon has the content that can and should change history and inspire us to greater and better things. They are the, um, the, the 
Oh, and as we, as we live out these verses, then like the disciples of old, you know, we have the ability to turn the world upside down. They, these sayings are a how-to for living in the real world that's full of frustrations and pressures and difficulties. They are the be attitudes, the kind of attitudes we should have. They relate to people who are too busy for spiritual things or who are suffering at the hands of people who despise anything to do with God. Um, they speak to, straight to the heart of people that are chasing happiness and all manner of things only to come up empty-handed. They challenge us to live a life that blesses others, and they challenge our true motives. Each of the Beatitudes starts with that word blessed or blessed. And um, to be blessed reflects the idea that you have all you need in life. It's sort of like saying, hey, congratulations, good for you. You've got it all together. You've got what you need. Um, The first four of these statements are inward-focused. They talk about how we can be blessed. And the second four are the outward-focused ones on how we can bless others. We can be a blessing to others. So let's go through each of them just briefly, and then we're going to look at what it means. So number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is found in verse 3. Poor in spirit means that we realize that on our own, we have nothing to offer Jesus. We realize that our faith in God is not based on how great we are, but on how gracious He is. It's recognizing our true condition and humbly seeing our desperate need for a Savior. You know, this one really challenges me because I think I've sort of grown up with that image that, you know, I've always been kind of a good girl. I didn't do anything terribly bad, and I feel like I've got that kind of... I've got that good girl image to offer Jesus. Lord, I'm, I'm this good person. Here it is. What do you think of that? But this... This beatitude strips that all away because being good doesn't get you into heaven. Being, being good doesn't, doesn't mean it's a pass. In fact, it's a fail. As we recognize this and we realize that we're coming up empty-handed, then we come into a right relationship with God. It's not based on who we are but on who he is. We can't build ourselves up to him. All we can do is plead utter defeat. But when we truly get this, then that's when we'll find God. And the kingdom of heaven is not just something that we, we you know, get to heaven one day. It's actually something we should be able to have here and now and, and feel and experience through relationship with God. The world says you should have it all together, but God says brokenness leads to wholeness. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, in verse 4. This beatitude is something we all face in life. You know, we all have things that cause us to deeply mourn and grieve. In fact, you will have heard, I'm sure, on Monday about that um, tragic shooting in Las Vegas where 58 people got killed and many more injured. And, you know, I just I can't even begin to imagine um, the tragedy and what those people are going through that have lost family and friends and, and husbands and wives and kids. You know, it's just devastating. In fact, why don't we just take a minute just to pray for them right now. Lord, we just do lift up every person that's been affected by this terrible shooting in Las Vegas, God. And we just pray that you would just comfort those families right now. We just release your Holy Spirit to surround them. And Lord, we ask that you would bring something good out of something so horrible and so ugly. God, we do lift them up to you in Jesus' name. You know, in the first service, someone came up to me at the end and said that apparently on Shine TV, that through this shooting, um, people have been flocking to the churches. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? God can use these horrible things to do something good. 
Interestingly, President Trump, when addressing the nation about this, he referred to the Bible. He said, Scripture teaches us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We seek comfort in those words, for we know that God lives in the hearts of those who grieve. Isn't that so true? And that is what this beatitude is all about. So often we try and skip or shortcut that grief process. But in this beatitude, God is saying, no, you are blessed when you mourn. Take time to grieve. Take time to go through that process because as you do, you will find comfort. God will be near. He himself will comfort you. Um, Psalm 34, 18, which President Trump quoted, says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. But following on from the first beatitude, it's not just about the mourning process when things happen to us. It's actually about realizing that, okay, we learned in the first beatitude that we have nothing to offer God. We come empty-handed. That knowledge then needs to go from our heads into our hearts. And as it does that, that causes us to mourn. It causes us to grieve. It causes us to hurt for, for how much we've hurt God and sinned against him. And you know, it's one thing to know it in your head. It's actually a whole other thing for it to go from your head to your heart and to really grieve over it. And that's what we're called to do. It's, it's not always easy. But as we do that, we come to this place where God promises that we're going to be comforted, that we can find joy and happiness that this world cannot offer. There is such freedom in, in knowing that we have and are nothing without God because it leads to dependence on Him. And I'm going to look at that um, in a little while. The world says happiness is found in success and wealth and power. God says happiness is only found in knowing Him and that knowing without Him we are nothing. Sadness brings happiness. Number three, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Verse five. Meek is translated to be submissive, gentle, and humble. It's an attitude that follows up on the first two, because as we realize our spiritual condition, we mourn over that and grieve over it. It leads us to come humbly before our maker. It's an attitude that makes us a person that can be corrected and teachable. And also, when we have that meekness in us, it means that when success comes, we're able to give God the glory and not take it for ourselves. The blessing of meekness is that if we give up what we see as power in this life, then not only do we gain so much more in the next, but we also, you know, we gain a lot on this earth because the more humble and kind and gentle we are, the better our relationships are going to be, the better our marriages are going to be, the better our outcomes are going to be. As we take our eyes off ourselves, then we can see and experience the earth and all it has to offer. And that's why it says the meek will inherit the earth. They're open to all its possibilities because they're not self-focused, but they're God-focused. A verse that God really just spoke to me about a couple of weeks ago was in John 21 verse 22. And the context is that Peter comes to Jesus and he's, he says to Jesus, who's going to betray you? Is it him? You know, is it him? Is it him? And God says to him, Jesus looks at him and he says, what is that to you? You follow me. And it's like God just spoke to me and said, you know, don't look at others. Don't compare yourself. Don't put yourself above or below. All you have to do is stay humble, stay meek, stay single focused and follow me, follow him. The world says, push to get ahead, promote yourself, fight for your right, put yourself forward and you'll get recognized. But God says, the humble will be lifted up, down is up. Number four, blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
you know, nothing in this world truly satisfies. It pacifies, but it doesn't satisfy. Righteousness is what we need to run after. And righteousness is being right with God and doing right for God. And we need to long for this. And that's not easy. It's something that God will work in us. But, you know, Matthew says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. As we start to long and hunger for righteousness, everything else is going to follow. The world tells us to pursue things that make us happy, like pleasure, fame, and fortune. But God says, put me first and you will be filled. As we empty ourselves of self-focus, we're going to get filled by God himself. Empty is full. All right, so those are the internals. Now we're going to quickly look at the externals. Are you guys doing all right? Oh, good. All right. It's quite a bit of teaching. Okay. So the next one, number five, is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Easy, right? Just be kind to others. <laughs> if only it was that easy. It is doing all that we can for others, having compassion and sympathy for those that are suffering. Our God is so merciful to us. How can we be any less to others? Far too easily, unfortunately. But to gain mercy, we must show mercy. A merciful approach to life fills us with love and compassion and a happiness that comes from sharing God's love. And you know what? A great place to start practicing this is actually at home. It's those closest to us that are the hardest ones to show that mercy to. You know, our spouse, our kids, whoever it might be, our family. The world says, look out for number one, but God says, look out for others. Show mercy so that you can gain mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So often we spend a lot of time working on our signage, on the outside stuff that the world sees. But God comes right in to see what our true policies are, what's in our heart, not what others see. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When we have a pure heart, we can see God clearly. It's when the inside and the outside start to match up. Then we're getting somewhere. Right motives, authenticity, and sincerity. When we have this kind of heart, then we're going to get a taste of what heaven holds. We will see God. We'll become more in awe of him, more aware of him, and have greater access to him. The real you, the real me, will see the real God. The real me will see the real God. Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I always wondered what this one really meant. We are called to bring reconciliation between people and God. As far as possible, we need to put fires out and not fan them into flame, to bring restoration and healing in difficult situations, to bring people together. This is what Jesus did throughout his time on earth. You know, he brought peace between man and God, he brought restoration, and he brought healing. The job of a firefighter is to put fires out, not to start them. And, a jo- and the job of the Christian is to help resolve conflict and not start more of it. Although the first person we need to make peace with is ourselves. When we are forgiven and at peace with God, then we can spread that peace to others. And as we do, then we are being Jesus to others, and we are called the sons and daughters of God. And that is to inherit his authority, to have intimacy with the Father, and to share in his character. 
Have you noticed that kids do not get this beatitude at all? They seem to take great delight in antagonizing one another. I don't know how many times I've heard Zach say to Emma, oh, guess what, Emma, it's my choice for TV time, not your choice. I'm going to choose what I want, not what you want. She cries, you know, or Emma will say, oh, Zach, look at this. This is my, my new toy. You can't have it because I'm playing with it. And he, you know, he gets upset and on and on it goes. And I'm like, have you guys not read the Beatitudes? <laughs> um, they don't get this. But I think it just illustrates that, you know, being a peacemaker is maybe not just a natural thing for us. It's something that we have to work at. But that's what God calls us to do as Christians. The world draws us into gossip and backstabbing and criticizing others which start fires, but God calls us to put them out. Number eight, the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs, excuse me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the next verse goes on to say, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus saves the hardest for last. You know, when we really live out this lifestyle, these beatitudes, this upside-down, inside-out, paradox kind of world, it's going to create some pushback. It's going to cost to live this way. The world doesn't like what makes them feel uncomfortable or challenged. And what Jesus is saying here is, hey, even when that happens, even when you get that pushback, even when you get that persecution, keep going because I know that you're walking with me. This is what I've called you to do. I really like the way J. John puts it in his book about happiness, which I got a lot of this material from. He says, In a culture with very little commitment to moral standards, someone who is trying to live out righteousness is going to provoke a reaction. Just as our bodies unleash defense mechanisms where a foreign object such as a virus enters our bloodstream, so the world also reacts to the presence of an active and living Christianity. Do you know, just the other week I heard of someone in our church who lost their job because they were a Christian. Um, basically their boss wasn't happy with the fact, didn't like the fact that they were a Christian and made it really hard for this person and got them an unfair dismissal. And I was talking to someone about it and they were saying, you know, part of me feels really sorry for this person that they've lost their job, but the other part of me feels really happy for them that they've been persecuted for Christ and that they can, you know, look forward to that great reward. And I thought, wow, you know, I haven't really thought of it that way. But now that you say that, um, it's so true. And I think this beatitude in many ways is quite encouraging because I know that for a lot of you out there, you know, being a Christian has hurt your family relationships. It's created some pushback, maybe some rejection. And God encourages us here. And he says, hold on a minute. I know that that's happened, but don't worry. Great is your reward. And we all have a measure of this persecution, you know, whether it's that we lose friends because we're a Christian, we don't get the invites that we used to, it is a a family thing that, that they reject us, or whatever it might be, persecution does come, and we can take heart that we are on course, and that there is a great reward waiting, and that it is worth it. So, where to from here? The Beatitudes, as I said earlier, are the Beatitudes. They're the attitudes we should adopt in our Christian walk. And you know, they each fit together. You can't just take one without the other. It's like you 
realize your spiritual condition, that leads you to mourn, that brings you into a place of humility and meekness. You start to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As you've got those foundations, we start to live out um, the externals, the uh, being merciful, being peacemakers, having the right motives. And finally, then when the persecution comes, we can rejoice and celebrate because we're living the life that Jesus lives. But when I look at that list and when I think about all of that, I feel like I failed before I've even started. You know, on my own, there is no way that I can live out these Beatitudes. I'm on a hiding to nothing. But the good news is that God doesn't expect us to live this out on our own. He calls us to partner with him and to walk with him. He comes alongside us. He, he brings his Holy Spirit on us and he says, don't worry, I'm going to help you step by step. Process by process, because it's, you know, it is, it is hard, but there is great rewards as well. This is what we're called to live, and it's a lifelong journey. I read this quote that says, you know, we're never going to be free of sin. We're never going to be sin-free um, in this life, but by God's grace, we can sin less, and I guess that's really what we're talking about. There's three things that the Beatitudes do. Number one, they draw us closer to God because as we look at the Beatitudes, we see their Jesus words and that Jesus really lived out this life. You know, his whole time on earth, he lived out the Beatitudes. He was perfect in all that he did. Number two, they condemn us because we realize that we're failing at one, if not all of them. But then number three, that brings us back to God. And that's where I want to go for the next couple of minutes. There's a song by Brian McKnight that I used to really like when I was younger, and it's called Back at One, and some of you might know it. Um, it goes through these five steps, and it has this line that says, if ever I believe my work is done, then I'll start back at one. And what I felt as I was going through these Beatitudes is that's where God wants us to go, you know, back to one, back to step one, the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and that is coming to that place where we realize we're coming to God empty-handed, you know, where we're, um, we've got nothing to offer and everything to receive. We're in desperate need of the grace that God so freely gives Sometimes I can be guilty of looking at my life and, you know, sort of saying, well, gosh, God, you must be pretty pleased with me nowadays. I'm, I'm serving you faithfully. I'm, you know, involved in different things. I'm going to church every week. I'm, I'm, you know, witnessing when I can. I haven't said a swear word in like 20 years or whatever it might be, you know. And we, we sort of think, gosh, I must be okay. But actually, if we stop and think about it, then I think, God, how was it that you placed me in a family that believed in you? How is it that I didn't drift from you? How do you continue to love me when I do the same thing wrong day after day, week after week, year after year? How is it that you continue to bless me when you know everything about me? Now we're getting somewhere. Back at one. Becoming poor in spirit leads us to dependency on God, and that's where God wants us, at a place where we're completely reliant on him. A place where we're so aware of our need for God at every moment of every day. And as we begin to get that dependency, that's going to drive us to pray. It's going to change the way we pray from um, asking, you know, giving God our list to a cry for help, a cry for forgiveness, and asking the Holy Spirit to guide us in all we do. It leads us into living our life in partnership with Him. And as we start that journey, everything else will follow. 
I was a big Narnia fan in my early years. I don't know if you guys have read the books. They're such great books. I still love them. One of them is um, Prince Caspian, and I want to read you a quote from it. It's from, the, um, it's from Lucy, and she's one of the main characters, and she encounters the lion, Aslan, who is the Christ-like figure in the stories. It goes like this. Aslan, you're bigger, she says. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I love that because the more we realize we lack, the bigger God becomes and the more dependent on him we become. There's a story that D.L. Moody told. It was about a minister who was one day moving his library upstairs and as he was going down to get some more books, he came by his little boy. He was very anxious to help him. He said, Dad, can I help you? And his father said, sure, you know, go and grab an armful of books and start bringing them back. Well, when his father came back, he he met the little fellow about halfway up, tugging away at the biggest book in the library. He couldn't manage to carry it up. It was too big, so he sat down and cried. His father found him and just took him in his arms, book and all, and carried him upstairs. That paints such a clear picture of how we are with God. You know, we're struggling away to carry our big book up. Sometimes it causes us just to sit down and cry, but God comes along. He picks us up, book and all. He picks us up, problem and all, sickness and all, unsaved family member and all, sinfulness and all, and he carries us upward. Hmm. Such a good, it is a great picture, isn't it? The thing about being dependent on God is that he is 100% dependable. In a few moments, we're going to sing an old song. It's called, um, it's come back though, but it's called, I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, more than words to say. And what I want us to do is just spend a bit of time back at one, you know, going, God, Here I am. I have nothing to offer. I need you more. I want you to take me into a greater partnership with you where I'm completely dependent on you. And, you know, I I need that in my life. I want that in my life. As a church, it's the foundation we must build on because as we come into partnership with God, as we come into that dependence on him, that's when he can start to do all that he's got in store for us, you know, changing our our communities, changing our city, changing our nation. We've got to start with being dependent on him and in partnership with him. You know, one other thing about the Beatitudes is that as we start to live this life that's so radically different from the ways of the world, it's going to bring people to salvation more than any words or any great message. If our lives stand out that much, people are going to start to take notice. But let's start back at one. If the musos could just come up, I'm going to read to you just to finish off the Beatitudes from the Message Bible. They just put it in a beautiful way. And they say, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you are content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's the food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. That persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. 
Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and that they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. (laughs) The essential message of the Beatitudes is that our private life is to have a public effect. These are the core principles we need to build our lives around. We're called to a different standard of living. You know, following Jesus is more than just coming to church and and realizing his don'ts. It's actually a call to a radical walk of discipleship and embracing his world-shattering do's. It's a call to walk with a different set of values. It's a call to upward living. Would you just stand with me? You know, I hope that there's um, no one that feels condemned by this message because the reality is, like I said before, We all fail with the Beatitudes on our own, in our own. We can't live this way. But with God, we can start this lifelong journey and He can take us to a place that's so much closer, so much deeper, so much more intimate with Him. So as we sing this song, why don't you just open yourselves up to God and say, God, I need you more. I need you more. Let's sing.